0: Here we are at our last GCF large group of the semester, and I could already hear the, the the sappy montages playing in our minds of all the still images of us holding hands and singing "Kumbaya" and having great times. And Green Day's "Good Riddance" is like playing in the background, right? It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right, right? And, and that we're I'm, I know we're all experiencing that because it's the finale. Um, it's interesting. It's actually a, a psychological. Um, Precept, too, is that how things end, you, you typically remember how things finish. Uh, and and, and how, that, how you remember that event finishing actually shapes how you remember that event as a whole. That's how our brains are wired to work. And, and <clears throat> the clearest way you can see this in your own life is if you, like me, like TV shows. Um, take TV finales, for instance. If a TV show has a bad finale, Regardless of how enjoyable that series as a whole was, you tend to look back at that show with kind of this lackluster disdain in your heart, i.e. how I met your mother. Um, It just ruins the entire show. But then there are shows we run into where the finale was so good and just so fitting for it that we return to the whole series again and again and again and again. For instance, uh, I've seen the entire Scrubs series like three times, and that's because the Scrubs finale ranks number three on my list of Tyler's top four finales. There are only four that made the list. The rest don't. The rest are bad. The top four are good. Um, Mash was another one that was a great finale. That's number two. Um, but the the ultimate show, the show that I go back to again and again and again and again and again is The Office, and it's, it's no coincidence that the greatest television finale I have ever seen and that I ever will have ever wanted to see um, is the finale of The Office. And my wife and I, we always talk about it. What is it that makes the finale of The Office so great? And, and what I loved about it <clears throat> is that in this uh, this culminating episode, they managed to bring to conclusion so many stories of kind of the story of Dunder Mifflin, the story of the characters in a way which was, that stayed true to the original storyline and consistent to the original characters. And I realize that's hard because a lot of times in these finales, people don't know how to end them. And so the story becomes a different story and the characters become different characters in trying to, to end it. And it's, it's not consistent with what you've watched over the series. And yet when Dwight is manager standing in his grave getting married to Angela, that is the same Dwight we see in the first season. When Michael randomly shows up at the wedding with one of the greatest Michael Scott lines in the entire series series, It is still the goofball, Michael Scott, who's putting the cards on his head in episode two. And when Jim and Pam are walking away with their two kids at the end of it, (coughs) it's still the same Jim and Pam who are exchanging these loving glances at each other um, in the very first episode. And the simplicity of it is still there in that it's about a paper company. And it stayed that simple and that engaging the whole time, from paper company to beet farming to to everything. It was perfect. Now compare that to How I Met Your Mother, where at the finale it takes the entire plot of the show and and works it out to be a sham. It completely robbed the characters of any sort of personal value. The, The Ted who we thought we knew wasn't the Ted who was in the end. The Barney who we thought we knew wasn't the Barney who was in the end. The mother... Of all people, we thought we knew was not the mother in the end. And see, what happened was the finale and the characters, the plot, whatever was in it, failed to be representative of the whole show. And that when we see it with our eyes, it brings some sort of discontent and actually shapes our affections towards it. Consistency of plot and consistency of character are what make compelling TV shows, and in the same way, Paul is concluding and giving the finale of the book of Romans, and he's calling us to that same sort of consistency. He's calling us to live a life which is consistently Christian in line of a consistent gospel. He's been painting this story, this monologue, this plot for 16 chapters now, and now he's turning to the characters in the finale of the book, which is really the prologue to the rest of your life. and He's saying, are, are you going to be consistent with what you've just looked at? And as we're here, we're looking at summer. We're looking at uh, finals week. We're looking at our party next week with Sweet Peaks ice cream that I'm so excited about. Uh, I want you to think of this as, as will I be Christian this summer? And Christian, not just as some self-imposed title or in terms of Sunday attendance, but in a way which is consistent with the whole story that Paul has just painted for us in the book of Romans. Will you be true to the title in the same way you expect your TV finales to be true to the whole series? And what we're going to see tonight (coughs) is that a consistent Christian is open to what is good, closed to what is evil, and compelled by what is glorious. Open to what is good, closed to what is evil, and compelled to what is glorious. How can we be in line? How can we be consistent? How can we be representative of who we are? Open to what is good, closed to what is evil, and compelled by what is glorious. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for another year to meet on campus. Um, We pray that what Paul wishes to impress on us today uh, doesn't go away for the summer but that stays with us and it grows uh, to wherever we are going, whether it's to Petoskey, Michigan, or to Ellensburg, Washington, or to Kalispell, Montana. Um, We pray that the gospel goes with us and it grows in us when we come back next year. We are anxious not to see what new Christians have come to GCF, but we're anxious to see how we can make more Christians through the power of your gospel to serve your church and glorify your name. Lord, we pray that we can be consistent Christians because we have a compelling vision of the gospel. We pray that you are kind to us tonight, that you um, grow your gospel here at the University of Montana, Lord, that this will be a place that experiences revival, that experiences uh, a great wave of salvation, not because we are mighty or because any other campus ministry has figured it out, but because you are a God who has purposed and planned for a great salvation for this world and so we want to come in line with the missionary heart of God and do our purpose to present the gospel to a dying people. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, probably a weird <coughs> passage to start with tonight, but we're going to read the first 16 verses of uh, Romans 16. So this is what Paul says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I only, not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles as well give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved who Epi, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian, those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphaena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persisus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Whew. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss and the churches of Christ greet you." So far from being just an empty list of really hard Greek names that pastors will have to pronounce through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, this list actually carries a huge point for us tonight because the whole Bible, is God's word. And so that, that doesn't mean that only the truth statements of Scripture, only the portions of Scripture which explicitly tell us about Christ, or only the portions of Scripture that fit well on Twitter or Instagram are inspired. The whole of what God has left us in the Word of God is for our good. And we see that tonight, where we actually see um, our first point a portrait of Christian openness. To be Christians open to what is good, we need to know what Christian openness means. And here we see that. And this is a really important passage, because culture's monologue um, against Christians is that there is no more closed-minded, narrow, or exclusive community than Christians. Culture is open, culture is accepting, culture is tolerant, but to go to church, you're a narrow-minded bigot. It's like they, they think we're, we have these clandestine meetings where we get together at night and we're like, hey, who can we oppress this week who's getting a little too big in the britches that we can really infiltrate and start to oppress and exclude and and it's like if I could express and exclude anyone into conformity I would do it with my children but I can't even do that let alone culture okay Um, but they have this big brother picture of us just like the whole point of Christianity is to exclude people but what Paul is showing us here in Romans 16 is a complete reversal of culture's message. Paul is overwhelmingly concerned with the openness and corporate nature of Christian life. The Christian gospel for Paul pulls people to him, not pushes people away from him. Now, if there's any individual who could take pride and be self-sufficient, I think it could potentially be the man who was hand-selected by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? Okay? Paul has a noble calling in Jesus Christ. And so Paul could say, I don't need you. Jesus said, I'm going to figure it out. He says, you're going to go, sure. He said, things are going to be hard, but I can handle it. And if you think about it, in most of the movies we see, it's always the like rugged, like army veteran who's experienced like torture or concentration camps or prison or or this this big <laughs> conflict that is kind of this isolationist standoff hero right he wants to do his thing he wants to help but he doesn't want anybody's help help it's kind of like the Clint Eastwood character who stands at a distance and wants to do it on his own and yet here we have Paul who has been shipwrecked for Christ, beaten, whipped, mocked, shamed, thrown into prison, and rather than standing back with that lone warrior mentality, he is pulling people to himself. He is inviting in the whole of the church to labor with him because he knows he can't live in isolation. Paul has been helped by the church. We talked about this last week. If the missionary Ventures of Paul are encouraged by the local church. How much more should you be encouraged by the local church? This means that Paul, he wasn't an iPhone Christian. And so many times we run into iPhone Christians where it's like, I have Facebook, I can talk to Christians, I have YouTube, I can watch Christian sermons, and I have the Bible app. I can read the Bible. I'm set. That's not what Paul was. Paul knew that you couldn't micro- uh, micro create the entire Christian experience he knew he needed others and it's interesting here because here we have the Apostle Paul right mega New Testament writer planted church on two maybe three continents uh, planted a whole bunch of churches evangelized basically all of Asia and yet when he's thanking people who labored with him he's not like hey I want to give a shout out to my fellow Apostle Peter James my homeboy and all the haters He's not not just bringing in these people who are on the same level as him saying, I'm grateful that I've got these other great apostles who are laboring with me. No, Paul is like, Rufus, Aristobulus, thanks guys. He's like going to the weirdos and the no-name people who Paul identifies as workers. That's all they are. They're not apostles. They didn't experience the same transcendent calling that Paul experienced. They weren't hand-selected by God. But in their salvation, they realized it called them to work. And Paul recognized those efforts. And he says, you, you are my encouragers. You are my friends. You are the people I want in my life. And that's your life. God has called you to both participate in the life of someone else, like these people have participated in Paul's life. But he's also saying that you, like Paul, should seek to partner with other Christians. We should have relationships which go both ways from us, where we are serving in others and discipling in different ones. And the interesting thing about this list, going back to cultures, saying that we are the greatest danger to openness in the history of humanity, is this list's diversity. See, in this list we see Jews, we see Greeks, and we see Asians. That's basically the whole known world at that time, and and surprisingly, given how women were treated in this culture and in this uh, this age period of literature, there's an amazing amount of women. Secular organizations in this time, uh, secular literature, didn't include women. Like Paul, just included women, but Paul includes them. Paul includes known slaves. Paul includes powerful cultural influencers. Paul includes people who suffered with him, who worked with him, who supported him, and who merely cared for him. Paul, like, references a stand-in grandma in this text. This is good news for us because that shows that there's not many people that Paul, one, hasn't benefited from, and two, Paul has not welcomed into the household of faith. And the point of this diversity is that the gospel brings us together. The more time I spent looking at the book of Romans, which is kind of just seen as this big theological handbook. um, But when I started really looking at it and really studying it, I realized the theology that Paul's writing about is not a theology meant to inflate the mind, but a theology meant to open the home. Look at Romans 16, 1 and 2. Look at the welcoming language he gives. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of Christ at Centraeae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Chapter 12, verses 4 through six. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then we look at uh, Romans one, verses fourteen and fifteen, where it says this I am under obligation both to the Greeks. And to the barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so i'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in rome which i always find that funny he's like hey i'm into preaching it to the foolish that's why i'm coming to rome um but but paul here is saying that this gospel has come in i can't you can't say it anymore i was gonna say it came in like a wrecking ball but stupid Miley Cyrus has ruined everything. But this gospel found all of the boundaries and all of the borders, language, geography, culture, background, and it smashed it with Jesus Christ. It said, what do you need to be Christian? Do you need to be an upper class white man in 20th, 21st century America? Do you need to be a powerful cultural broker in first century Greco-Roman culture? No, to be in Christ, you need to have the gospel, and the gospel levels those distinctions. You see, there's no group of people more welcoming, more open, more eclectic, and more diverse than the Christian church, because there's no message more leveling than the Christian gospel, which says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are saved not by position, privilege, or power, but by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith. You see, the call of the gospel is a call to love Christ, but you can't disassociate a call to love Christ from a call to love others. Not outside the faith, not inside the faith. And actually, inside this book, Paul, I was, I'm amazed at, at how a great tone of Romans is this tension between strong Christians and weak Christians. The point of Paul's theology in chapters 1 through 11 was not just to lay out theology for the sake of theology, but it was to tell us how we ought to live together as Christians because you run into people who are different. And he makes it clear that the strong in faith are to bear with the weak and the weak in faith are not to despise the strong. And that means two things for you. When I say weak and strong, the majority of us probably identify with those who are strong. And maybe some of us identify with those who are weak, but there's two implications for that. First, the strong, you're not that strong, okay? Um, And and he says, don't be frustrated with those who don't have as clear a picture of the gospel, but bear with them in love. Don't be frustrated when you see people who are growing in their understanding of who God is, of what our nature is, but labor with them as Christ labored with you, because you once... We're dead to the knowledge of Jesus, but made alive by the Holy Spirit. And so to the strong, don't run away from people who are different. Don't write off people who are weird. Don't turn your back on people who seem just spiritually immature. Help them, labor with them. Next year when you guys come back, you will all be, brace yourself, you'll all be one year older, okay? Which means there'll be another crop of freshmen running around in here. And if you're not willing to disciple them, to care for them, to reach out to them, then you are failing in your strength. To the weak. You may often think that often people make too big a deal about what is the gospel. Why do we have to define it so clearly? Why do I have to know about my sin and and how Jesus saved me on the cross? But what Paul is saying in justifying your weak position, he's not saying stay weak. He's saying realize you need to be humbled and you need to grow. For while Christ uh, brings in those who are weak, the power of the gospel makes us strong. So to be a consistent Christian, you're enduring to those who are saved. You're evangelistic to those who are not saved because you realize that you were once weak, you were once lost, you were once enemies, and it was only through the gospel of grace and the labor of others who shared that gospel with you, that you were saved. So you too seek to be aware of God's grace in your life, but also aware of the way that God used men to save you. You ought to use your your gospel to proclaim it to others. So in your life, where does this openness show up? Where do you see you leaving your selfish tendencies behind to make your life about your comfort, your wants, your needs, and your schedule Where do you see yourself reaching out to disciple the weak? Where do you see yourself digging in to understanding greater clarity what the gospel is? Where do you see yourself having a passion to evangelize to the lost? Where do you see yourself passively? um, uh, I see this in my own heart in Montana. I have still stereotypes about Native Americans, and I don't even think about it, but they're there. But how opposite the gospel! What a slandering thought to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's only through the Holy Spirit that we begin to identify these areas of prejudice. And it's only through the gospel that we adequately remove them rather than just turning from them. To be a Christian (coughs) but not be open to what is good in the corporate gospel is to be inconsistent with the gospel which saves you. You see, inversely, Paul talks about this openness, but look at what he talks about in the next few verses. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, in Greek literally their own stomachs. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So here we see Paul greeting consonant laden name after consonant laden name and and saying, Welcome people and accept people and greet them with a holy kiss. And churches are greeting churches. And now he starts to lay boundaries. Paul opens it, but now he begins to bar it. And this is the second point tonight. In order to truly understand Christian openness, you also need to understand a portrait of Christian closedness. What does it mean to be closed as a Christian? What does it mean to be closed to what is evil? And so prior to this text, we see unity. We see openness. We see collaboration. We see racial walls falling down. And here now Paul begins to warn us of something. And this is what's most ironic about what we hear in culture. What does Paul warn us against? Paul warns us against things which cause division and obstacles to people. And the interesting thing is what poses the biggest threat to divisions, dissension, and obstacles is not biblical doctrine but the absence of doctrine false doctrine without boundaries. He's saying, beware of those who are contrary to biblical doctrine, because that's divisive. That's dangerous. That's a stumbling block. And so you have just one more week of actual school here, and then finals week comes, and there are many things you're considering, and you're planning, and you're weighing in your heart. What am I going to do this summer? That's for you people who aren't Christian and aren't going to Project. Project people already know, because they're the chosen ones. Um, but you're weighing, what am I going to do this summer? Who am I going to hang out with? What am I going to do for money? How, what job am I going to have? What, am I, what do I want to improve about myself? What do I want to do next fall? And this is where Christian closedness is important. Because all of us, in some ways, realize that there are some things we shouldn't do this summer. There are some boundaries to what we seem or we deem as healthy behavior because we know not everything is good for us. Even non-Christians know that. But more importantly, and actually what is even more hard for us today, is what God is saying here is that not everyone is good for us. Look back (laughs) at verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to what you have been taught. Avoid them for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive." See as believers we all face stumbling blocks. We all face trials and what Paul said in Romans 8 is that all of those are actually gifts from God to transform us into Christ. This is true of of things that God puts in our way and also true of of ways in which we sinfully stumble. But what Paul is saying here is there there are some obstacles and there are some divisions which are avoidable. And you should avoid those. And that's where Paul is drawing these boundaries. He's, He's drawing boundaries for the sake of good Christian health. He's drawing boundaries because he wants us to thrive. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be Christian. And what Paul says here is that is that there are some people who are contrary to Christian doctrine. See, that's hard for us. Because people are people. And people are real. And it's easy to say there are some doctrines which are contrary to the gospel, right? Doctrines doctrines are thoughts. They're not people. I don't go and eat pizza and watch football with doctrines. I do it with people. I didn't grow up with close friends that were doctrines. I grew up with close close friends which were people who I really related with, who I really had interaction with, who I really liked. But the truth is is there are some people in our lives who despite our relationship history with them are harmful to us because of where they stand in relation to Scripture. And, And the Greek word that's used here of contrary, it could actually mean two different things here. It could mean first that it's a person who who says things contrary to doctrine, meaning someone who, who thinks they're a Christian, who talks like a Christian, who thinks they act like a Christian, but they're telling you to do Christian things which are clearly opposite the gospel. If you don't think that's a common thing, look at Donald Trump, okay? It's common. It's even nominal still in America. For people to say, yeah, you could be a Christian, but why do you have to do that? You don't need to do that. And then it could also mean people who are against or opposed to Christianity, people who don't see themselves as a Christian, but seek to undermine the gospel, to be in opposition against it, to proclaim the foolishness of the gospel. You are so weak-minded. That's such an antiquated belief that you would think that. Do you also believe that witches are running around and there are boogie monsters under your bed? And Paul says of these people, both of the Christians who speak contrary doctrine and of the enemies who are against doctrine, he says, avoid them. For they don't follow the gospel. They follow something of their own appetite. I mean, they make it up. That's one thing our culture is really good at, of making stuff up. And rather than coming alongside the Christianity, which which is consistent with what the message of Christianity has been throughout Scripture, they invent their own. And it looks good, and it sounds good. And just like the finale of How I Met Your Mother, it's branded the same way, same theme song, same actors, same supposedly plot. You fall prey to their smooth and enticing words. And you realize that you've been sold a false bill of sale. Right, they say things like, why do you have to be so legalistic? Why do you have to tell me how I live? Why do you have to say I can't do this? Why do you have to be so narrow-minded? Why do you have to be so different? Why do you how foolish are you to think that you could actually find happiness in this way of life? True happiness is doing the opposite of everything you think is good. And they say these things to us, and in so doing, when we allow them into our lives, we are deceived. Or the tone of the word is, we are trapped, and you are naive, is what Paul says. See, what Paul is saying here is very relevant to your summer friends. As you go back to your friend circles, your family, the people you've had relationship with a long time, Paul is saying that in all these places, we should seek to share the gospel. But he is saying that there is also, (coughs) in a place where you have deep intimacy with people who are far from the gospel, it becomes a danger to your own soul. That doesn't mean the relationships between you two have gone away, but it does mean that you need to be aware of how dangerous that is for you. Think about those who are closest to you, your closest friends. How would you describe them? What words Would you say? Would you use the words that Paul just used to describe his friends? Workers for Christ Jesus. In Christ with you. Fellow workers in Christ. Approved in Christ. Beloved by Christ. Chosen in the Lord. I can tell you this we could all have acquaintances, and we could all have friends that we could hang out with. But when that top tier of friends, the friends you turn to for counsel, the friends you turn to when you are facing a decision, the friends you verbally process things with, the friends you turn to when things are tough, the friends you first call when the news is good, if they're not described in the same way Paul described his friends, you are being deceived. And Paul writes this hard message to warn you they should not be your closest friends. For if they are not living, proclaiming, and growing in the gospel, they are selling you snake oil and false promises which will ultimately harm you and destroy you. That's not love, that's not friendship, that's not joy, and that's certainly not the openness that we want to see in culture. And so Paul wants you to be aware. Again, look at verse 19 for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You see, Paul doesn't just want you to drop your friends for the sake of dropping your friends. He wants you to really see why it is you're relating to some people and why it is you shouldn't relate to other people. And Paul's gonna make that clear in verse sixteen, twenty, chapter 16 verse 20 the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you so here's what Paul's saying I want you to be aware of what is good innocent of what is evil for the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with you. Here's a question for you. Why would you knowingly want to associate with something evil when Jesus has promised to destroy it? You say, well, that's hard. I've been friends with these people for a long time, and no one's saying never talk to them again. We're just saying be realistic about how much counsel. We were created to be counseled. The first thing we did as human beings was be counseled from a, from a good source in God and a poor source in Satan. And we responded to poor counsel, okay? When you are interacting with people, you are being counseled by people. And so to pull back from friends is hard. And sometimes we will say, hey, why aren't you hanging out with me as much? And you have to then give um, what Paul calls to give a hope, uh, a reason for the hope that you have. And that's hard. And evangelism is often scary. Talking to someone you've been great friends with is often intimidating. But the flip side of verse 20 is why would you want to fear wise and good decision making when Jesus has promised to be with you? You see, Jesus is calling you to be obedient. And he knows that's hard. But he says, my grace will always be with you. And that ought to be sufficient. You see, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he revealed the danger of sin. It's deadly. It demands your life. But in his resurrection, he revealed to us the power of the gospel. It's life-giving, and it brings life. You see, to be obedient and to be consistently Christian Your life needs to be shaped by the danger of sin seen on the cross and the life of Christ seen in his resurrection. And when we understand those two things, it shapes the way we live. It shapes the call of obedience in our own hearts. And see, I was recently watching um, a show with my kids, Wild Kratts. It's uh, this TV show where it looks at animals. And I was... Uh, they're talking, I've, I've learned a bunch of cool things from Wildcrafts, Like the best animal for speed that has the greatest terms uh, or greatest uh, distance speed, but also burst speed is the pronghorn gazelle. And that's because their, horn, their antlers are hollow and so they actually circulate air and so it cools them. Anyway, um, as of are watching this, they're talking about buffalo birds. And buffalo birds are birds that feed off of Buffalo, okay, good. Uh, This is Ornithology 101. You guys are passing so far. Um, But buffalo are herd animals. And so buffalo don't stay in one place very long. They're always on the move. So what that means is that the buffalo bird doesn't have time to stop and build a nest. So what it does is it, it has adapted to be a nest parasite, meaning that it waits for other mama birds to go away, and then it flies into their nest when they're not looking, and it lays its egg with the other eggs And then the mom bird just leaves. And this this buffalo bird grows up in the nest, grows up in the nest it was placed in, acts like the other birds, demands to be treated like the other birds, thinks it belongs with the other birds, eats food that should go to the other birds. But it never really belongs with the other birds. You see, what Paul wants to do in the book of Romans is purge the church of buffalo bird Christians, belonging to the nest only in name. And that's because what the gospel does is greater than what the buffalo bird does. It doesn't take someone wholly different and put it in a nest and say, figure it out. It takes someone wholly different and makes that person wholly other. It takes a buffalo bird, it takes a sinner, and it makes it into a natural bird. and makes it into a new man, a righteous man, because of what Christ has done. To be a truly natural bird involves no longer acting like a buffalo bird. No longer being a buffalo bird. And to be a Christian, you need to be more than simply named alongside the nest. You need to be changed by the person of Jesus Christ. And to be changed by Jesus is to be obedient to Jesus. Because you're no longer what you once were. This theme of obedience, which is horrible to culture. We want to believe and then live how we want to believe. We want to believe and be saved without any strings of obedience shaping our life. But look at how Paul opened the book. And pay attention to the words here. Verses 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle... Set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. Now, Fast forward to his ending. First paragraph of Romans, last paragraph of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So there are two common phrases that bookend this text. Obedience of faith. And in this book, this wonderful book, Salvation by Faith Alone, the faith which saves us, is also a faith which calls us to obedience. You see, this great book that God has given us and preserved for us, it it discusses in detail the anatomy of salvation. It walks through our sinlessness and Jesus' perfection, our deadness and Jesus' action, our guilty status and Jesus' innocent punishment, our deaf ears and God's piercing call. But if we believe those things without changing our obedience, we do not know that God, nor do we have that faith. For to have a faith without obedience is to not be faithful. And to have obedience without faith is to not be consistent. For to be changed by faith is to live by faith. For Romans 1.17 says the righteous shall live by faith. To be consistent in your life is to be obedient to what God has called us to do in all areas. You see, in the same way we want our TV finales to be shaped by a consistent theme and consistent characters, so too should we want to see that consistency which drives us back to the series of the gospel over and over and over again because we realize that obedience is just the application of grace and gospel daily. To to truly show the beauty of what's happened in our hearts, we have to go back to the gospel over and over and over again so that each time we look at our lives, we're struck by the drumming narrative of grace in our own life. That's what it means to be obedient. That's what it means to understand theology, is to not turn from the gospel and go somewhere else, but to turn to the gospel and to live in the riches of God's grace, shaping your life in daily ways. But how is this truly done? Look at Paul's doxology again, Romans 16, verses 25 and 28. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all the nations, according to the commands of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this last portrait, and the portrait that we need in order to see how to be open to what is good and close to what is evil, is the portrait of Christian excellence, to be compelled by something glorious. You see, in this passage, what Paul begins to do is he begins to tell us the mystery of God revealed, right? He, he, he walks through this thing um, according to the mystery that was kept secret. What were the Old Testament people looking for? The gospel, which was seen in shadow but not in shape, heard in tone but not in quality. And it says, now being revealed to us in the gospel, in the Christ event, is the mystery of God. Okay, so, uh, so tonight is draft night in the NFL. If anyone tells me about it, it will cause me to question my obedience. Um, but uh, And so the, the week leading up to the NFL draft, everyone wants to know what's in the mind of the GM controlling your team, of the general manager. Who's going to draft that guy? And all these anonymous sources are saying, my source with the Titans says this. And we long, like us NFL fans and draft nerds, we just long to know what is it that the guy in charge is thinking regarding this guy. And here we have, do you realize the mind of God is laid open for us in this text? We get so excited to think about what Jay-Z thinks about rap or Beyonce thinks about fashion or what Donald Trump thinks about America. And yet here, the heart of the cosmic creator, the infinite sustainer, the Holy Father, the imminent judge, the transcendent divine has been laid bare before men as exposed in the person and work of Jesus Christ in scripture. You see, this is the compelling portrait of Christ which shapes our obedience. That means that Paul isn't calling us to blind obedience for the sake of rote repetition. Do because you ought to do. He's calling us to be compelled by the glory of God in the gospel to obey with faithful efforts in every area of life. Why should you be concerned about a life of obedience and faith? Why should you be concerned that God will receive glory and honor and praise forevermore through Jesus Christ? Why should we care that the nations know the glory of God and command of the eternal God? Because it's only through that gospel that you have life. It's only through that grace that you have salvation. Because to not know the wonder of your salvation is to not know the glory of God. And to not know the glory of God is to be disobedient to his call in your life. To not be amazed by God is the first sin each and every one of us commit. For Christian worship isn't the result of man's effort to find something worthy in God. But it's the response of a man who rightly sees God as who he is. Just two weeks ago, look at the command of God in Romans 15, 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles let all the people extol him." You see, we care about responding to the gospel in obedience because those who understand the gospel can't help but respond to the beauty of Christ. And that's why in Romans, Paul is unpacking and storing and pulling out for display and setting up this beautiful gospel, which he says is only a reminder of what you already know in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We respond in obedience because we know, as Romans 1 puts it, we were dead in the trespasses of our hearts, rejecting Jesus, exchanging the truth for a lie. We know we're able to know him only because Romans 2 comes and says that Jesus was righteous to the end, but we were only sinners by nature. Romans 8 tells us that as we encounter these demands of Christian obedience, we may encounter sword and famine and disease and petulance. But why should we worry about responding obediently to God when he has promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? For as Romans 6 has says, those who have new life in Jesus, why should you fear losing it? You may believe and have confidence before God despite your current emotion, cultural circumstances, or present oppression because Romans 9 tells us that we believe not because you have the capacity or because you have some special enlightenment, but because Jesus found you in the deadness of your heart. You were saved not because you found God, but because God found you and reached out to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that because God's zeal for salvation knows no boundaries, borders, or language barriers, His gospel will go to the ends of the earth and his gospel will win people to eternal life in this life and in the life to come where the ultimate crushing of satan's head has happened the fulfillment of genesis 3:15 where the new adam has crushed the serpent has come to abolish sin and death and slavery and famine and disease and hardship and apartheid and oppression and addiction and suffering and cancer and everything this sinful world holds so dear has been undone by the power of the cross made manifest in the resurrection of the dead And we know that that calls us to be obedient even unto death for the sake of Jesus Christ for he has crushed Satan and given us grace. You see, how do we become obedient Christians? By being changed by God. You can't stir up that vision you can't out effort that vision. You plead to God that He opens your eyes to see the glory of Himself in Scripture. And in His grace, what Paul has just said to us is that that is His delight. That is what compels us to obedience, to worship, to glory, and to eternity. To Him the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that you have not given us a life which forces us to find tricky ways to connect what God has done for us to how we live for God. But you have created it in such a way where when we know what God has done for us, it shapes how we live for God. For there's no such, the, the question of how does theology shape my life is a false question. For there's not a way where theology doesn't shape our life because the gospel changes our life. It gives us new life. It opens blind, eye, blind eyes. It opens deaf ears. It gives voice to the mute. It gives life to the dead. And if that doesn't change us, then we don't know what life is. And so, God, I pray that because our hearts have been struck by the mallet of mercy in Jesus Christ, that we are open to what is good, that with the whole of our effort and the newness of our hearts, we seek to serve your church, to build up one another, to evangelize the lost for the glory of your name and the good of your church. I pray that with winsome messages we may engage those who are contrary to the gospel and harmful to the church as we become near to them but not in in submission to them as we learn to love them without yielding to them for we know that what is evil will be destroyed but we are not of those who who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who believe and are saved. We thank you for this gospel Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept in secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.